Zach Leary, welcome to Eric's Psychedelic Breakfast. <laughs> Eric, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. The legend, man. Um, thank you so much for being here. Um, I mean, your dad is literally a legend, <laughs> a a true um the mind of a legend, if you know the song. <laughs> yes, he is. He was. Yeah, he he is, and he was, and and you are too, man. Honestly. Thank you. The son of the mind of the. <laughs> huh. Um, but yeah, w one question that obviously a lot of people ask you is, what was it like growing up with Timothy Leary being your dad, and obviously Ram Dass, um, right next to you? And I actually wanted to ask you: Did you ever meet Maharaji? No, 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 no. That was, you know, okay. he died before I was born. So, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, he gotcha. Died, he died, yeah, he died in 1973, um, September of 1973, almost exactly a month before I was born. So, um, yeah, not wow. possible, but I, but I could say, yes, I've met him. I've met him in the astral and in the heart. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, me too. Uh, when I was reading Miracle of Love, I had a very good connection with Maharaji there. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's the whole idea, right? Um, for um, the second generation of devotees like myself and like you, too, I guess it's like the whole idea is that even though he's not in his body, we can still be with him, still be in the presence, still be in the force field and still be in the mm -hmm. love. You know? And um, and yeah. being in the body doesn't really matter as much. You know, the teachings and the vibration live on. Right. And also, I think too, in some cases, I mean, of course, I go back and forth, like wishing, wow, I really wish I was at Maharaji's feet at his tuck in India and got to be with him in the body. And of course, that's great. Right. And we all think that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, too, I'm also like part of me is like glad because it's sort of like, you know, when somebody is in their human form and in their incarnation, you still have to deal with their humanity, you know, and mm -hmm. maybe he would have let me down. <laughs> you know right maybe i wouldn't have liked him as much you know and maybe exactly. i would have seen something about him i didn't like and you know you've got to deal with their humanity and and yeah. he was a human being after all you know he wasn't above being a human and so in this way we're divorced from all that like you know so i go bo both ways with it <laughs> yeah and sometimes i wonder if um ramdas talks a lot about guru's grace and it, yeah. it makes me wonder, is that like specific to a person that's a guru or is guru's grace could possibly be a moment? Could it be everyone potentially? Can everyone be a guru? You know um, I, mean? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, sure. In some ways, I mean, Maharaji would say and Ramana Maharshi would say before him, um, god guru self all the same you know mm -hmm. i think actually ramana maharshi said that first and maharaji echoed it but god guru self all the same and you know and, and if you look at it that way um we're all each other's teachers you know we can all be each other's teachers and we could all help each other walk each other home and help us through right. the fog the fog of life um but the guru's grace i mean you know that's also sort of like a practice too you know is is falling back on the grace and the wave and the love 
of the unconditional love and teachings of, of the guru, you know, and that grace is always available to you, even when you get in your own way. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And um, that is coming from someone who has literally probably had the most amazing trip <laughs> with Ram Dass, um, doing psilocybin. Um, what a lucky moment and, I mean, yeah, it was a very, uh, a very lucky moment indeed. Um, yeah, I'm self-aware enough to realize how fortunate I was to have that experience. Um, and at the time, you know, I recognized it too, but it wasn't as much as mm -hmm. big of a deal as I look back on it now. I'd say, yeah, just a little over 10 years ago now. 2004 yeah it's a little over 10 years ago now and looking back on it it was so uh <laughs> so amazing <laughs> you, you know something that's really crazy is that i found out that the first time and place that ram does ever did any psychedelic was mm. with timothy leary yep. in mexico um yeah. in this city called cuernavaca yeah and that's actually where i was raised oh wow and it was mind blowing when I found that out. Like it's crazy because, you know, I came I came from there and I never expected to see any type of connection with that place. I always thought it was oh, it's such a small city. It says no, no one will even know about it. I always have to explain what it is. And then I don't know where I'm like, someone's explaining to me what <laughs> where Ramdas oh, no, did I, mushrooms I, for the first time. And not just Ramdas. I mean, Cuernavaca is a a very important hub of indigenous mushroom use. Oh you know, wow! Going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, you know. Many wow. great corandaires came from Cornavaca and many mushroom strains kind of uh, originated there as well. And um, a very oh, important wow. vortex for the for the sacred mushroom. Yeah, I mean, wow. so it's in your blood. Wow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is such a crazy synchronicity, man. Um, I've always felt so... Uh, connected with Ram Dass's, um and Tim Leary because they just seem like such normal human beings. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And the one thing that made me feel like very connected to them was they would talk a lot about doing the dishes and how when they used to do a lot of acid, the sink would get very dirty. <laughs> no one would want to do the dishes because... <laughs> And yeah. I, every time I walk past my kitchen and I like, especially when I have like a big podcast or something, I'm like, I want to have the world's biggest podcast, but I, I don't want to do the dishes and I make myself do the dishes, you know? That's a, that's a great thing to realize. It's sort of like in self-help circles, you know, you hear that thing about making the bed, you know, the first, you should always oh, make, oh right, you know, yeah. like all high performance leaders yeah. and CEOs, you know, make your bed in the morning because it starts with a, a clean mind, you know, and a clean perspective on the day. Um, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, what you're saying is also indicative of the opposite regarding Tim and Ramdas is that they were uh, not normal people, you know, it's like mundane things like that. They were just, I couldn't care less, you know. Like Timothy was, you know, my dad was extremely messy, you know, with, could care less about practical things, you know, um, about household 
issues. He could care less about how the house looked. That was always my mom. Um, he was terrible with money. Um, That's great to hear, though. <laughs> you know, and because his mind was just always somewhere else, you know. Right, it always, yeah. It was just always kind of at this other place where his mind was just resonating at such a high, high level. Um, yeah. And like, I didn't realize that at the time. I didn't get that till much later. But I mean, yeah, I mean, he really was the smartest guy in the room. You know, we use that expression as a cliche, but he literally was the smartest guy in the room. And do you, He's, yeah. Do you think that he was always the smartest guy in the room? Do you think he had so many experiences that he grew like with you alongside? And like, you guys, he, when, once you started realizing that he was so smart, he, maybe he was like, getting there you know or do you think he was just smart his whole life um well yeah i mean he was pretty brilliant his whole life mm -hmm. even before psychedelics <laughs> if you look at like his right his graduate his post his doctorate thesis which is the interpersonal diagnosis of personality which was written in 1957 i think um i have to fact check me on that but that was pre-psychedelics and and if you look at that, I mean, it's an extraordinary work, um, you know, so, I mean, he was always tapped into um, very high cognitive functioning capabilities. Right. But, um, I think it also grew over time as well. But yeah, you know. in in the movie. Um, oh, my goodness, I can't forget, I can't believe I forget the name. Dying to Know. Um, fantastic movie, by the way. The first time I, it's it's in my library. Yeah, it's and, great. And I, yeah, I was mind blown. I was like, oh, I'm just gonna, it's probably not a real movie, probably not a real great movie. And I watched it one day and I was like, wow, I just uh, like accidentally learned everything about the psychedelic history. And, That's and a good movie. It's well made. Yeah. It's, and now it's been turned into a book, I heard, yeah. which yeah. very exciting. Yeah, very exciting. I mean, the two of them had an incredible friendship and partnership that, you know, veered off in incredible ways, you know, and I think that's the most important part. Sure, their early mm. work together is great and was historic and very important, but, you know, yeah, what happened once they veered off, I think is even more interesting, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah. When he became, when Richard Albert became Ramdas and Tim became more of an outlaw, you know, I think those are those divergent paths are just so right. fascinating. Yeah, I remember there was a scene in Dying to Know, I think it was Dying to Know, where he's in the courthouse and they ask him to describe, like that he's done so many trials and ingestions with so many people and, and they ask him, can you describe the effects of the psychedelics? And he's like, I can't. Like he never put himself <laughs> as, as like the person who you know he he always I don't know you know he had that um, authenticity um he he was very humble with it you know yeah he stood well, outside of it I don't know yeah and I think yeah he was but he also had an incredible passion that bordered on I don't know that bordered maybe on zealotry or something you know but yeah who knows i don't know he's not around anymore to ask so <laughs> <laughs> and um around that time that he split away from ramdas 
is that ironically a similar time when you started getting into Hinduism and Ramdas or have you just always been into no, well my journey was, was much later you know much much later you know keep in mind that oh that, okay that happened way before I was born um but yeah by the time I kind of got into um I mean you know for me Ramdas was always around when I was growing up um wow you know always but um and I did you know I did read Be Here Now when I was a teenager and following the Grateful Dead around and and I really did love it and I resonated with it, but I didn't, I never viewed Ram Dass as like my teacher, you know, I was actually, to be honest, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, I was terrified of Ram Dass. Really? Uh, yeah, because he was, when you're around somebody like that who beams that way, you know, beams just with that stare and that smile and that just that piercing glare of unconditional love and joy it's hard to be around when you're not in that space you know mm, if, and, if you don't understand what that space is you know you think wow like what's up with this guy like this it's really challenging to be around um and it wasn't until much later did i uh change my 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 relationship and my perspective you know? yeah but keep in mind that what you were talking about that happened in the you know late 60s early 70s and you know way before i was born wow well, I wish I could have been alive then, man. That sounds like such a good year that brought. I mean, it's a great time to be alive now because we have all of the results of everything that happened then. Yeah. But for example, the Grateful Dead, man, that's something that I can only experience them being old, which sure has its own um, pros. You know, if I could go back to young Zach Leary and be like, hey, do you want to see um, the Grateful Dead and when they're old and still performing and like their last shows? You're probably yeah. like, yo, that'd be crazy. But now I'm sitting here like asking you, does sitting at home and watching live performances of the Grateful Dead in the 70s and stuff, does that make mm -hmm. it give it justice to what it was like? Well, oh man, I'm kind of the wrong person to ask because I started seeing them uh, when they were still around and 1987 1988 is when i started going heavily mm. and i spent so much time seeing them and and um you know with with garcia too you know and um, it's been such a huge part of my life for 35 years now it's like kind of the core kind of a center temple flagpole of my life that when I go listen to an old show or watch an old show or go to archive.org and because every show they ever played is on archive.org, um, you know, and I bring wow. those up, I can still tap in, you know, yeah, wow. I can, I can still get it. And on the other hand, you know, too, like when you go see Dead and Company today, which is not the Grateful Dead, it's not even close, but mm, right. it's still really good, you know, John it's Mayer. still john Aaron, it's good it has the spirit and it's a lot of fun um there are tons of young people there there are tons of people your age who weren't even alive when garcia was still around and so yeah i guess people are still discovering the music and the magic and they did something right <laughs> yeah know? right people are still discovering it. i'm amazed at how many young people are at dead company shows today blows my mind you know? yeah yeah, I mean, John Mayer is also a great guitarist, you know, that's, it's I feel fantastic. like that helped a lot. I mean, yeah. And another band that recently has also been touring is 
well, not band, but Pink Floyd and Roger Waters. Did you ever get a chance to see Pink Floyd live in their prime? I did, but not with Roger because Roger left in 1980, Oh, you know. wow. But Okay. I saw the post Roger incarnations, you know, in Wow. the 80s, in the 80s and 90s, um, Yeah. which were great. They Right. were great. I mean, still, Yeah. still a fantastic show, you know. Oh, man, I hate to make this question, but um, in their primes, which show would you have rather been at? A Pink Floyd Pride show or a Grateful Dead? Well, I I feel I got to see the Grateful Dead in the prime. Um, Right. <laughs> I, okay. like, like I, I there I for me there are uh, a few different periods of the Grateful Dead's journey that were Right. peaks: sixty nine and seventy, seventy three, seventy four, seventy seven, and then eighty eight and um, eighty nine and ninety. They in eighty nine and ninety they were just as good as they ever were. Period, hands down. And I saw them tons then. Um, so I feel like I got to see the Grateful Dead. I mean, sure, I would have liked to see them, you know, at, at the Fillmore East with a thousand people, of course, who wouldn't, but but I saw them crying. And so probably not the best comparison. Um, I would maybe shift the question to like Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin, you know, or Jimi Hendrix or or the Who or um the Eagles or, you know, And who um would you compare Grateful Dead to, rightfully? no one. <laughs> Wow. They're They're in their own category, you know. Okay. Um, but I wish <laughs> Her I saw, answer. <laughs> I wish I saw Pink Floyd in 1977, though, on the Animals tour. If there's any one Ooh. tour you can go back to, it would be Yeah. the 77 Animals tour. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I talk about seeing um, Sean Lennon with Roger Waters' son and Les Claypool. They Oh. all per they all performed animals animals. Yeah, yeah. yeah I saw that live I was there You <laughs> like it? it was great Les Claypool Yeah. singing sounds a lot like Roger Waters Mm. honestly Yeah. I, I um yeah, I'm sorry I missed that show, but I'm I'm sure it was good. Yeah. yeah I saw them I think in Houston I think it was or something Oh nice. yeah Yeah, they're great. um so now you've been doing a lot of kirtans which is so so cool i i love kirtans um is the only difference between a kirtan and a chant that it has music behind it Um, well, kind of, I mean, you know, Kirtan is also chanting in a way. And right I would say like the difference between Kirtan and like mantra. Um, okay yeah I mean, yeah, I mean, sort of, Yeah, right. I mean, the, the I mean, the musical part of Kirtan, the fact that it is kind of essentially a mantra practice on top of music, it is important. It does make a difference because music, you know, the sonic tapestry can create a different level of elevated ecstasy and bliss, you know, um, especially when things really
it, it makes me think about the difference between a good kirtan, a psychedelic experience, and a Pink Floyd concert or a Grateful Dead concert. <laughs> All very similar, man. All right? very similar. <laughs> Like Very what? Similar. What happens if you combine all of them? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Has that ever I mean, happened? I mean, the feelings that I've That's gotten crazy. at Kirtans, at really good Kirtans, are very similar to the feelings I've gotten at Grateful Dead shows. To wow. a, not exactly the same. Don't get me wrong, but very similar. You know, because you get to that point where you are so in the moment that you're not thinking about anything else you know and i don't know about you but that's a pretty tough thing to experience in life our minds are always rambling yeah. so strong you know and the monkey mind is always firing so even when you're doing something great you could still be distracted sidetracked or whatever but like when you're in those moments where magic is happening and your mind is nowhere else it's just right there you know and that's a great thing to experience right it, it almost feels like faith it's like faith it's also very psychedelic too right because it's like it when you're in any moment you just feel like you have to be worrying about money or if you're not worrying about money then you have to be worrying about something because money equals time and if you're not doing something valuable with your time you're bored you're wasting time mm. um but the truth is that you can actually instead of identify with that you can identify with the moment which is so beautiful because the moment does not care about money it does not care about time it doesn't care about anything it just oh it's always there and that is such a cool thing to identify with it's such a powerful thing to not like oh okay this happened but i'm still here in the moment that okay exactly man exactly <laughs> that's the duality of, of being human you know it's like oh, we worry about the small things right you know we're, yeah. we're, we're wired to worry about the small things yeah and even in the bible it says um uh somewhere i don't know <laughs> i haven't really okay i'm just gonna say um it says something like, uh, don't place, um, like your worries, place your worries on me, not on the material or whatever. Mm -hmm. And every, everything else will follow or everything else will come. Mm -hmm. And it's so like Maharaji was a perfect example of that. Like he would yeah. literally pray for suffering, you know, to, yeah. to, try to stay in this, in this plane. To absorb it for others, you know? Um, right. Yeah, and the, the Bhagavad Gita says the same thing too. You know, Krishna says the same thing. Place your worries on me. You know, yeah. you fixate right. on on me in all of your actions, then you won't be in as much suffering. And all of your actions too. You know, like even the mundane when you're doing the dishes, like you said at the beginning. Like oh, if you're doing right. if you're doing the dishes and thinking about Krishna, then that becomes an act of devotion, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is that kind of a little bit of the point of saying Hare Krishna? Because I know, like, after I've, I was very young, I started listening to Duncan's podcast, for example, before I heard anything about Hare Krishna or anything. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I've obviously knew about Buddha, but I hadn't read much about him. But just after listening to a bunch of his podcasts, him saying Hare Krishna at the end, mm-hmm. this made me want to say it. I just went around saying it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and people would ask me, like, what does it mean? And from what I understood, it was there was energies behind the 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 saying it of God's name. That would bring yeah, you good luck. But also, too, but, you know, don't forget the rest of the mantra, too, you know. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama, Rama Hare Hare. You know, yeah, it's the repetition of, of God's name. And um, like we were talking about Kirtan, you know, when you repeat the mantras, um, you are activating something inside of you that fixates you on God, on spirit, on source, you know, and takes you out of your feeble little monkey mind you know wow you know wow that that makes me think um i want to talk a little bit about um this book um the psychedelic experience sure Timothy leary um wrote i mean my first question i guess would be whose idea was it originally to realize that the stages of death align perfectly with the psychedelic stages um yeah i i think there is no direct um neither of them will take credit for it <laughs> i think it was a joint wow. discovery um you know when they discovered the tibetan book of the dead um you know that they realized that like you know the death <laughs> the ascension of death and the different layers of ego death were perfect juxtapositions against the psychedelic experience, you know? Um, Yeah, I don't really know if it was a Tim thing or a a Ramdas thing. I always have thought Mm -hmm. it was just a joint discovery. Um, And then there's Ralph Metzner. And Ralph Metzner too, of course. (laughs) um, Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Um, But it was an amazing, especially for the times, you know? Like back in those days, you got to remember that, like, you know, there was not a yoga studio in every corner. There was you. Nobody really in America knew what mindfulness meditation was. You know, I mean, this is early on, man. This is before all of that stuff came to America. Nobody knew what Hare Krishna was. Nobody knew what yoga was. Nobody knew what mindfulness was. Very few people knew much about the Buddha or Krishna or any Eastern esoteric or mystic traditions. No, but that was that was considered it was like speaking Martian, you know? And so it's really prophetic that they discovered that when they did. Um yeah, very, very prophetic because they yeah, yeah they stumbled on something that's still, I mean, that book is still incredibly appropriate for today. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man. I, I, I'm surprised I didn't talk about it a little bit more and dying to know. Um, uh, but I, that, that feeling we're talking about, about being in the moment uh, when mm. you, when you're um saying Kirtans and at a really good Pink Floyd concert, um, in, in the second look experience, they talk about the first bardo. And then they talk about the second bardo and they talk about everything always going back into that first bardo. And if you lose that clear light moment is then, then 
it's kind of like a ride through and that's what the book kind of prepares you for um would you say that first bardo is a way to stay with that same type of feeling that you get when you're in the moment it's like you, you know because they say Uh, yeah, it's I mean, like eternal enlightenment or whatever and I mean, do you have it handy? Do you have it handy? Like, I, I, I don't have the book handy right now, oh yeah but i i have it i got it right here yeah, if you just read like the the kind of the little intro to the first Bardo, um, I think it might help listeners. Um, because I don't want to misquote it. <laughs> Okay, okay. Let me see. Mm. Like the part that you're that you record. <laughs> okay, here we go. Let me see. Uh okay, so Okay, so the first borrow is the period of ego loss and non-game ecstasy. So it says that um the primary clear light seen at the moment of ego loss. Oh, okay. So all individuals who have received the practical teachings of this manual, if the text be remembered, will be set face to face with the ecstatic radiance and will win illumination instantaneously without entering upon hallucinatory struggles and without further suffering on the age-long pathway of normal evolution, which traverses the various worlds of game existence. <laughs> Game existence. <laughs> right. <laughs> interesting terminology to very much of the times you know that all of our these little melodramas throughout our day are, are essentially just games you know <laughs> Wow. but that's exactly right and that's a great thing to remember um you know especially during the psychedelic experience or any contemplative practice psychedelic breath work kirtan mantra floating whatever always come back to that you know always come back to the the central thread of you know your ego dissolving and that um you know essentially the difference
it's it's great stuff. Um, but I've never. <laughs> I love that idea. Of the Bible is simulation theory. I mean, it's one theory. It's one way to go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's one way to go. You know, I, I'm I'm not positive it's uh, the way to go, but right. You know, it's yeah. certainly becomes more and more compelling, especially as the digital age, um, you know, has taken a hold of humanity in the way that it has. You know, we're we're so ensconced in the digital in information age now that separating uh, cyber realities from waking realities and uh, physical realities have become indistinguishable. Right. Yeah. You know, and yeah, that, 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 that makes me think, how will that mix with psychedelics? I mean, when I think of a VR experience, I honestly think of, I mean, I know that people are going to be, I mean, people already go watch movies, Grateful Dead concerts and TV, or, you know, if you can have that experience while tripping psychedelics, say from your bedroom in a virtual experience, I mean, just to talk about the therapy, therapeutical aspects of that is kind of very interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Terrence McKenna stumbled on that. Oh, that's right. So long ago. I mean, yeah. in the early 90s. If you look at the subtitle for the Archaic Revival, Archaic Revival. Um, right. I, that book maybe came out in 92, 93. Look at the subtitle of it. It's like reflections on shamanism's UFOs and virtual reality. You know, right. he was, yeah, I mean, he caught that in the early nineties, which is insane if you think about it. Insane. I mean, he saw that way before anybody else did. That when we are creating these, uh, you know, like John Perry Barlow said, you know, cyberspace is a place. It's its own tangible dimension mm. that you can go exist in and create an avatar and hang out in. And if you really add another dimension to it to make it uh, all-encompassing and multidimensional, then, hey, what's the difference? Wow. Like, what's, what's the difference, really? I mean, is there one? I don't right. know. You know, if you're an avatar living your life in, in virtual reality, Connecting with other people, having relationships, meeting them, spending money, having sex, and what's what's the difference? You know, right. I, I think one can make an argument that you know the difference is much smaller than you think it is. It really makes me think about Midnight Gospel, and ever since I started watching it, I had a different perspective from when I started listening to Duncan because I watched the Midnight Gospel first, I think. And I, I started looking at it later on with the perspective that Lancey is kind of our soul or whatever. And he's going into these worlds in the simulation and is addicted to going into these avatars and completely ignoring. I mean, that's how the last episode ends. And honestly, that's why I think it's such a, good thing that maybe there wasn't a second season because the ending was perfect you know kind of like the mm. whole thing explodes the simulator explodes and it's like wow um it's just so crazy that we do this and um integration man i mean it's it sounds very similar as well to um maybe going through a good 
<laughs> taking off your headset feels kind of like what it feels like after you have a psychedelic trip, honestly, or maybe in the peak of a psychedelic trip. Um, so do you have any tips for integration? Because I feel like a lot of times, like Clancy goes many times back back into the worlds <laughs> and doesn't really let these experiences um, kind like, of take hold. Yeah. Big hole. yeah, cause maybe that's what we are doing, you know, <laughs> maybe we're Clancy. Yeah. I mean, that it's a, you know, but you do make a good point in all seriousness. And I think that's one of the, um, the big differences between, uh, the 19, the, the counterculture 60s, oh. 70s use of psychedelics and today's use, um, you know, even the way I grew up, you know, it's like, you know, we still were really fixated on chasing peak experience, you know, right. um, which was fun. There's fun aspects to that, but we're always trying to go back to, you know, that oh. central stage of chaos and, and yeah, and you can go back and keep going there, but, and it's fine, but it's more useful for your everyday life to come back, take some time and really understand or not understand, but try to manifest and find some ways to take those realizations and apply them to your daily life. Um, because psychedelics are not a sustainable method, like say meditation is you can't do them every day. It's not a daily practice, you know, it's something that you can drop into now and then too. Right. You can do it every get... other day because of the tolerance. Yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> not even that, you know, you, you can just drop in now and then to kind of reset, explore, but you've got to come back and make it work for your everyday life. Otherwise, you just you'll fall into escapist paradigms, you know, and um, right, and you don't want to do that. Yeah, because it gives you a, an opportunity to. Um, one of the things that I love in the end of the psychedelic experience is, um, well, not in the end. A lot of the times when it tells you, like when you're experiencing negative visions or. I believe it's the third bar to a fourth bar to something like that. You clearly are not with the um the clear light. It it tells you meditate on the vision of you in the future as you want to be. Like I think it's like the coming back into the world, like the last um reforming the ego or going back into the game of of ego. It tells you to meditate on an image of yourself that is something. Um, that you want for the future because you're about to come back and you're going to have a chance to reorganize kind of like your life a little bit. Mm. And I love that advice because it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, it kind of shows you what psychedelics are capable of. Well, like Stan Groff said, um, psychedelics are non-specific amplifiers. That means say you, they are adaptogenetic. They can, adapt to what you need them to do for you um, um and everybody's relationship is different you know if you need to um you know i mean mental health has become such an yeah. important part of psychedelic research today but if you need to go into kind of have a new relationship with your depression anxiety or your trauma you can do that if you need to go in to have a greater spiritual awareness you can do that if you need to go in to lessen some addictions or physical pain or, um, you know, a fuller expression of your dharma, you can do that. You know, they're, they're adaptogenetic. They work for mm. 
how you need them to work for you. And um, interesting, pretty unique. Yeah, I, I I've always heard the metaphor of kind of like a, a trip is kind of like being in a car, but you're in the passenger seat. No, you're in, maybe you're in the back seat. Well, obviously every psychedelic is different, <laughs> but every psychedelic you're in a different part of the car. Um, obviously, but um, I. I know that they talk a lot about set and setting and how important that is. And one of the reasons why it's so hard and you don't see constant psilocybin therapy being offered to everybody is because we understand that if we were to give psilocybin to someone who's having a really bad day, it's hmm. probably not going to make their bad day better. Probably not. Um, probably not. I mean, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, that that's why, you know, leading up to a psychedelic experience, you know, even, you know, if things are going well for you um, and, you know, you've done so much careful preparation and you've been really deliberate about the journey to come and you've been working hard at it. But then the day before the journey, you have a total meltdown, you know, maybe you've gotten it just a, terrible fight with your partner your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever and or you know something terrible happened and and then you still go ahead and do the journey the next day it might not be the best right. way to do it you know and that's why um you know that's where the whole idea of um, bad trips and challenging experiences mm. came from because people were doing them not really doing a temperature check of what's going under underneath the hood and they were going in anyway you know and right. and i tell anybody who's doing psychedelics if i'm working with them as a facilitator or otherwise like you have the freedom to hit the eject button at any time you know even 10 minutes before the journey if it's not wow. feeling right, it's okay wow. it's not the right day you know and honor that yeah. don't force yourself into it yeah yeah, no, I, re I really like how there's drugs that cancel out bad trips. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, kind of, you know. A little bit. A, li yeah. a little bit, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. What, what do you think about, um, I was going to ask you about microdoses, but I'm kind of, we're kind of running a little bit short on time. And I, I really want to ask you a little bit about your, because I know you have a psychedelic cohort that I really want to be a part of that looks so cool. Um, I'm actually going to graduate in December and I'm looking forward to moving to Austin. So, oh, cool. so yeah, man, I, I love to hang out in therapy. I, I mean, here it's on some time. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe therapy too. That was an accident, but <laughs> I just said it. But my next uh, cohort starts on April 24th, and uh, you or anyone listening is welcome to join. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that, that would be in the, the link for the description. But I just want to ask you real quick, your style of therapy, because um, you do have a lot of history dealing with uh, psychedelic therapy. And I also know you have a very specific style that's different and original. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Well, A, I just want to correct the word. I'm not a therapist. Um, nor okay. do I, not, nor do I pretend to be a therapist. Um, um, I mean, the word psychedelic mm. therapy has kind of just become a catch-all. Um, but what I do, it does not substitute the need for a therapist. 
like especially for severe mental health issues. If you're coming into doing psychedelic work for mental health issues, it's really important that you keep the continuity going with your traditional therapist. And then if you come to someone like me, who's kind of a, a, a facilitator, a guide, a spiritual coach, um, mm. you know, a, a medicine person that you can drop in with that person. And certainly I can help you weave through some of the complexities what's going on with you mm. but taking it back to your therapy uh, relationship is really important you know never look at psychedelics as a way to replace therapy especially in the mental oh. health context. um i mean if we're talking about other contexts it's it's different but when we're talking about mental health you know never it's not a replacement it's a wow. it's a, it's an additive right. it's some it's complementary you know right. uh, and yeah, you know, so I really focus on my style, really focuses on the, um, the spiritual nature and mystical nature of the experience and that um, you're best served when you go within, you know, when you have the eye mask on and you go within and you have that conversation with yourself, with spirit mm. in a place that is very unique, you know, that you don't treat the session as six hours of talk therapy. You use the session to go within and to feel and to notice what's coming up in your body and notice what's coming up with your ego. Notice what's coming up with your identity. Feel how the pain feels, feel how the successes feel and the triumphs and that navigating those spaces is really sacred and special. And that it's a, it's not a cognitive experience. It's a mystical experience. So I try to really wow. never forget wow. that. You know. That's really cool, man. Um, one of the things that they talk about in the book is that a lot of that you you will start feeling physical symptoms in your stomach, or you will want to go to the bathroom a lot. And it says the advice is to merge with the feeling because you're having energies or changing within your body; they're flowing. Yeah. What What do you think about that? Well, which one? I mean, like they're, they're like, all things. Like, like okay, if, you need uh, to to the, if you need to go to the bathroom, yeah, like sure. go to the bathroom, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Like on MDMA, like, you know, you might want to pee a lot, you know, just that's just right. the drug right. And don't, don't resist that, you know, go to the bathroom. Um, but with the others, yeah, I mean, you want to, the, the idea is to settle into it. It's to, you know, make friends with the changes and to not fight them especially the distractions, mm. you know, it's when, you know, it's so easy to get distracted and to get away from the intentions and to let the fireworks kind of consume you and to really get back into the intention, into being grounded, into the reason that you're there to do it in the first place. Um, it, it takes time to learn how to do, but it's well advised. Do you, um, do you like the three-day trip advice? Not the three-day trip. I'm sorry. Like um, the three-step process. Yeah, yeah. You take one day before, a day and a day after. Yeah, I mean, always you got. Well, you have to look at the entire thing always as a three-step process: preparation, right, and then integration. So, like the worst example, the well, the best example of the worst thing to do would be to have a huge psychedelic experience on a Monday. I mean, a heroic dose. And then go back to your job on a Monday. That would, that's terrible advice. You know, that's exactly what you don't want to do. You know, you need the day after or even a couple of days after mm -hmm. to really soften your reentry, you know, 
Um, and that prevents, uh, well, creates, you know, more effectiveness, more efficacy, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Yeah, man. Um, I do have to run, but. <laughs> all right, Zach. Well, thank you so much, man. Um, I'm really looking oh, forward to pleasure. all of the new ther therapy aspects and everything that's going on with psychedelics and MDMA with, with maps. Um, didn't get to touch on that, but thank you for everything, oh, Zach. Yeah, visit maps.org and you can. Of course. Yeah, but I'll go oh, with. And also, also your book is coming out. I wanted to plug that. Yeah, it will uh, it will come out a year from now. A year uh, from now. Oh, yeah, cool. we're, we're in the editing phase, so but look wow. forward. Yeah, we'll say that for the next podcast. <laughs> yeah, for sure, that'd be great. All right, thank you, Zach. Have a great day. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. you. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.